Good morning. Happy Easter. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Our sermon last week ended with the death and burial of Jesus. I mentioned that the last thing in the world the women were expecting to find after his Sabbath was over was an empty tomb. They were preparing to anoint a dead body. Not only the women, but all the disciples had to be crushed, discouraged, and disillusioned. But little did they know, Easter was coming. Let's read about it in chapter 24, starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners? be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Let's pray. Lord, we've got a very familiar message on a very familiar topic. And the temptation may be to let it go in one ear and out the other because we've heard it all before. I pray, Father, that you would impact us anew with the amazing miracle of Easter and strengthen our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several women were up before the crack of dawn on that Sunday, the first day of the week. They had agreed to meet together and take spices to the tomb to finish the proper burial procedures for Jesus. They missed one small detail. According to the Gospel of Mark, they realized that they were not strong enough to roll away the large, heavy stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb. Oh, well, they'd have to figure it out once they got there. I'm sure they must have been shocked to find that the stone had already been removed. And that could only mean one thing. Grave robbers. What other explanation could there be? Remember, they came to prepare a dead body. The last thing they expected was a resurrected Messiah. No one expected a resurrected Messiah. Verse 4 says that while they were wondering about this, Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now, needless to say, the women were frightened. I once went to a convenience store during a strong thunderstorm in Missouri. Thunderstorms don't bother me. I usually I actually enjoy them. As I was leaving the store and heading to my car, however, a lightning bolt suddenly struck a transformer on a pole just on the other side of the parking lot. It exploded, and the whole area lit up like it was noon. Thunder doesn't bother me, but this made my knees buckle, almost dropping me to the ground. I would imagine that this is how the women felt, alone in a quiet early in the morning in a tomb, when suddenly the place lights up like a transformer explosion, and two men are standing there in brilliant white robes. We find out later in verse 23 that these men are angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead, they said. He is not here. He has risen. Verse 10 even tells us that some of the women's names was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, 
and others. These women raced back and told the apostles what had happened. The apostles didn't believe them. All the ladies this morning are probably thinking, typical men. But let's give the guys some credit. I mean, a story about angels in an empty tomb? It's kind of hard to swallow, right? Peter, of course, had to see for himself. Verse 12 says, he got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, if chapter 24 were a play, that would be scene one. In verse 13, we shift to scene two. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So two people are walking along, and one of them is named Cleopas. We learn from John 19.25 that Cleopas had a wife named Mary. A large percentage of Jewish women were named Mary back then. She had stayed by Jesus at the foot of the cross. So my guess is that Cleopas and his wife Mary are walking back home to Emmaus. Anyway, Jesus comes along and meets these two on the path, and they are supernaturally kept from recognizing him. Verse 17 says their faces were downcast. Of course they were downcast. The one they had loved and followed had just been crucified. Cleopas was surprised that this visitor didn't know about these things that had happened. Pretending not to know, in verse 19, Jesus asks, What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And then in verse 21, they add, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, to redeem Israel meant to re release Israel from bondage to the Romans, to make Israel free and great again. They had hoped he was the Messiah who would do that. But everyone knows that a Messiah would crush his enemies, not be crushed by them. Verses 21 to 27 they said they had heard that some of the women followers of Jesus had found the tomb empty, and angels had said he had risen. Jesus then explained to them how Moses and the prophets had predicted all of this. When they got to Emmaus, Jesus was about to continue on, but the couple strongly urged the stranger to stay with them, saying, It's nearly evening. People didn't usually travel at night back then. It wasn't very safe. So Jesus agreed to come home with them. After the food was prepared, they all sat down for supper. Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks for their meal. And suddenly, in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Scene 3 begins in verse 33. As the couple got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, no longer concerned about nightfall, they found the apostles and others gathered together. The group exclaimed, it's true, the Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. Verse 36 says that while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Verse 37 says they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Now, we've heard and read this story so many times, 
it doesn't really phase us anymore. But they were living it for the first time. So all of these happenings had to be very confusing, scary, and even mind-blowing. And then to have Jesus suddenly appear out of nowhere in front of them, no wonder they thought he was a ghost. Verses 38 and 39, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's common among liberal scholars to think that Jesus just rose spiritually, whatever that means, but that his body stayed in the tomb and decayed. But that's not what the Gospels teach. Jesus shows them his hands and his feet and invites them to touch him, saying, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then as if to emphasize this fact, Jesus asked, Do you have anything to eat here? They gave him some broiled fish, which sounds kind of gross to me, and he ate it in their presence. The resurrected Jesus was no mirage or ghost. People talked to him, and he talked back. They touched him. They ate with him. He had flesh and bones. He had a different kind of body, a resurrected body, but it was a physical body of flesh and bones that they recognized as Jesus. Verses 44 to 48, Jesus helped them understand how the scriptures had predicted all that would happen to him. He told them that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And he said they were to be his witnesses. In the closing scene, beginning in verse 50, Jesus leads them out near Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. They went back into Jerusalem and waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is recorded in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. And that's the story of Easter, according to the Gospel of Luke. Now, if we were going to be brutally honest with ourselves, doesn't all this stuff about angels and resurrection and appearing and disappearing and ascending into heaven sound like mythology or fiction? Why would we believe a story like this? There's a song that says, You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That may satisfy many Christians, but it doesn't satisfy non-Christians who don't have Jesus in their heart. So why should a non-Christian take seriously the idea that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, first, one of the things that convinces even non-Christians Christian scholars that the tomb of Jesus was found empty is because the very first witnesses to the empty tomb were women. In those days, both Jews and Gentiles thought that the testimony of women was not reliable, that it could not be trusted in court. So if you were going to make up a fictional story about an empty tomb, why would you write the story in such a way that the very first witnesses were all women who, according to their culture, couldn't be trusted? It would be like writing a story today, trying to convince people that John F. Kennedy had come out of his grave and the first witnesses were drug addicts. No one would make up a story like that. So the fact that the Gospels all admit that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women has convinced even skeptical scholars that the tomb really was empty. Okay, so if the tomb was empty, 
Maybe someone stole the body. We'll come back to that. A second reason people should take the story of the resurrection seriously is the testimony of Paul. Even the most radical skeptics believe there really was a first century evangelist named Paul. And they, even if they don't believe the Bible is inspired, they believe Paul wrote some of the letters now collected in the New Testament. Letters like Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Philippians. What we learn about Paul from his own letters is that he hated Christians. He violently persecuted Christians, even to death. But suddenly, his whole life changed. Overnight, he changed from being a persecutor of Christians to being a promoter of Christ. And we know from his letters that if you asked him why the big change, he would say it's become he, because he became absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He would say that he saw Jesus himself. In Paul's letters to the Corinthians and Galatians, he wrote about how Jesus had appeared to the apostles and others, and how Paul had personally met with some of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. In, Paul, in fact, Paul says he personally received their blessing to preach his gospel of Jesus' resurrection. Paul was so convinced that he endured enormous hardships to preach this gospel. He endured shipwreck, hunger, thirst, and was once even stoned and left for dead. In fact, many threats had been made against his life, and he was in constant danger. He had been chased from town to town, being whipped and beaten with rods on numerous occasions. And what did he gain from all this suffering? He ended up spending years in prison and was finally beheaded. And yet through it all, he never wavered in his absolute conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. Critics, of course, will say that he just had a vision, maybe too much stress or sun. But in three cases in which this vision are reported, those who accompanied Paul were also affected in some way by the encounter. Whatever Paul's encounter with Jesus was, it was not just something going on in Paul's head. Besides, Paul also received confirmation from eyewitnesses, from those who had personally seen Jesus alive after his death. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said many of those eyewitnesses were still alive. The implication being that the Corinthians could travel to Judean churches and could personally talk with those who had seen the resurrected Jesus. Third is the explanatory power of the resurrection. In science, explanatory power is the ability of a hypothesis or theory to explain known data. So, for example, most scientists believe in the Big Bang Theory. That's not because it can be tested in a laboratory or because anyone lived way back then to observe it. It's because scientists think that that theory best explains all the data we observe today. It has explanatory power. The idea of the resurrection of Jesus also has enormous explanatory power. It explains the factual data that are hard to explain otherwise. So in the example we've been talking about, Paul's belief in the resurrection explains why Paul, a rabid persecutor of Christians, would suddenly become a promoter of Christ. We find the same thing to be true of James, the half-brother of Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus describes James as a very pious, observant Jew. And the New Testament says that before Jesus' death, James did not believe in Jesus. But this pious, observant Jew 
later not only believed in Jesus, he became the head of the Jerusalem church that preached Jesus. What would explain this radical turnaround, especially at a time when Christians in Jerusalem were under such intense persecution that many of them fled the city? James' conviction that Jesus rose from the dead would explain it. The resurrection also explains the sudden change of worship from Sabbath, or Saturday, to Sunday. All of the early Christians were Jewish, and one of the fundamental elements of the Jewish religion was Sabbath observance. You didn't just decide to worship on another day back then. Even Jesus himself worshipped on, on the Sabbath. For a Jew to worship on another day of the week would be a rejection of Judaism. It would be as radical a change as if PETA suddenly decided to start sponsoring animal sacrifices. Such a dramatic change would demand an explanation. So what would cause these early Jewish followers of Jesus to make such a monumental change as to suddenly start worshiping on the first day of the week? Jesus' resurrection on Sunday, the first day of the week, would explain it. The resurrection explains why Jesus' followers would continue to follow him even after his death. Remember, most Jews were expecting a Messiah that would crush the Romans. In their mind, a Messiah who was crushed by the Romans could not possibly be their Messiah, by definition. Even Jesus' own disciples were disillusioned right after his crucifixion. As we saw today, the women were expecting to anoint a dead body. And Cleopas said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. There were numerous would-be messiahs back then, and in every single case, when they were killed, their followers disbanded. Why would Jesus' followers continue to follow someone who looked like a, a failed messiah wannabe? The resurrection would explain why they would continue to follow Jesus. The resurrection would also explain why the earliest followers of Jesus would worship him as God. Remember, these earliest followers of Jesus were all Jewish. And one of the fundamental doctrines of Judaism is that there is one and only one God. To worship someone else in addition to God was a denial of Judaism. Why on earth would these early Christians, who were all Jewish, suddenly start worshiping Jesus and the Father? Well, Jesus had claimed to be one with the Father. So the resurrection provided evidence that Jesus' claim to be one with the Father was true and would explain why they would start worshiping Jesus as God. Evidence like this has convinced even many non-Christian scholars that the earliest Christians genuinely believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. But, the skeptics say, there must be some other explanation because dead people just don't come back to life. In other words, their argument against the resurrection is not for lack of historical evidence. It is philosophical or ideological. So they come up with all kinds of theories about what happened to the body of Jesus. And all of their objections have been thoroughly answered. For example, one of the theories is that Jesus didn't really die. They just thought he was dead. As if Roman soldiers were too stupid to know when somebody was dead. So the barely living Jesus was placed in a cold, dark tomb without medical care, and sometime during the night or next day, he wakes up. Now remember that he was so weakened by the beatings that he couldn't even carry his own cross before the crucifixion. And after the crucifixion, 
he would have been suffering from severe blood loss and would be in critical condition. How he somehow manages to move the heavy stone in his condition and crawl back to his disciples with nail holes in his hands and feet is a mystery. But he finally gets there, and they see Jesus, severely beaten and bruised and caked with dried blood from head to toe, and they jump up and shout, Hooray! He has risen! What nonsense! They might think it was miraculous that he survived, but they would not conclude that this beaten and bloodied Jesus was their resurrected Messiah. So another theory, the earliest one actually, is that the body of Jesus was stolen. Remember that according to the Gospel of Matthew, the religious leaders gave large amount of money to the guards to say that Jesus' disciples stole the body while they were sleeping. But if they were really sleeping, how do they know what happened to the body? On the other hand, if all we had was an empty tomb, the stolen body theory might be a good argument. But Jesus' followers also saw him alive after his death. In fact, the women were the first to see him alive. Now, remember that I said that even skeptical scholars are convinced that the tomb was empty because no one would make up a story about women being the first eyewitnesses. But the women were also the first eyewitnesses to see Jesus alive after his death. The same evidence that convinces skeptics that the tomb was empty should also convince them that the women had seen, talked with, and touched the risen Jesus. But the skeptics' objections are, are, are ideological, and no amount of evidence can be allowed to overturn their bias against the working of God in this world. Beside all this, everything we know about these early Christians shows that they were persecuted severely for their faith. People may choose to suffer and die for a good cause, but not usually for something they know is a lie. So, for example, if you lived back then and knew that the stories about seeing Jesus alive were lies, would you continue to spread the lie after being in prison? How about after being beaten or whipped? How about after seeing friends or family members being imprisoned or tortured or killed for your lie? And even if you were evil enough to continue preaching what you knew to be a lie, Surely someone would have broken down under the persecution and confessed, if it really were a lie. So some people then say, well, the whole story about Jesus in the Gospels is just myth or fiction. C.S. Lewis once reacted to such nonsense, saying, all I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I am prepared to say on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legends or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well that the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. End quote. Beside that, the very earliest Christians, writing right after the Gospels were written, never thought the Gospels were just myth or fiction. The Gospels were always understood by Christians as being historically accurate. I just finished reading a 500-page book by a world-class scholar named Craig Keener. Keener goes into great depth comparing the Gospels to other ancient writings and concludes that they are biographies intended to communicate factual historical truth and were not just myth or fiction. 
So some scholars will say, well, okay, they're not fiction or myth, but they're not historically reliable either. But the general historical reliability of the Gospels has been demonstrated over and over and over again by scholars. Critics just generally ignore the evidence. In fact, the biblical scholar Craig Blomberg recently wrote an 800-page book demonstrating the historical reliability of the New Testament, mostly focusing on the Gospels. I am convinced that if the Gospels did not contain miracles, no one would doubt their basic historical reliability. So why do people really doubt the resurrection? I think it comes down to two basic issues. First, they do not believe miracles are possible, and the Gospels contain miracles. They've been convinced by David Hume's argument against miracles. Hume rigged his arguments against miracles in such a way that no amount of evidence would be allowed to stand. What many people don't know is that David Hume's arguments against miracles have been thoroughly refuted, even by non-Christian philosophers. Christian scholar Craig Keener wrote an outstanding two-volume book on miracles in which he totally destroys Hume's arguments, making them look downright silly. A second reason people don't believe in the resurrection is because they just don't want to believe. There was once a world-renowned atheist philosopher named Aldous Huxley who had the honesty to admit that he didn't become an atheist by examining all the evidence. He says he realized that atheism gave him political and sexual freedom So he set about trying to find reasons to support his atheism. He said every atheist philosopher he knew in his time was the same way. I appreciate his honesty. Like Huxley, many people just don't want a God telling them how to live their lives. They don't care what the evidence is. So many skeptics play kind of a game with us Christians. It goes something like this. If you Christians can't prove to me beyond any possible doubt that every single word of the Bible is true, then I'm not, I am justified in not believing any of it, or at least not the parts I don't want to believe. But the game is rigged because nothing can be proven beyond all possible doubt. There is always a gap that can be crossed only by faith. And that is true of science too, by the way. I think God intended it that way. But we have plenty of evidence to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, demonstrating that he was who the Gospels claimed him to be. In fact, what I've covered here is only scratches the surface of the evidence. Michael Lacona and N.T. Wright have both written outstanding 700-page books discussing the evidence. Those of us who have examined the evidence and have experienced what we believe to be the grace and power of God in our lives and the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts have no trouble proclaiming with Christians around the world that He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, you have not only risen, but you're coming again. Help us to live in light of your coming. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone listening to this sermon who has not repented of their sin and turned their life over to you in faith, they would not let this Easter go by before they submit to your Lordship. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.